And now hear God's holy word from Ezra chapter 9. Ezra was a priest and scribe who led Israel or the tribe of Judah back out of the Babylonian captivity, went back to build the temple. They're finished building the temple and they turn around the people are a mess. And this is where uh, Ezra prays. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread up my hands to Yahweh my God. And I said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we've been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from Yahweh our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us to our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we humble ourselves before your word today, and we pray that as we reflect on the work of your saints throughout all the ages to uh, reform and to revive your church, we pray that in our day, reformation and revival would not be foreign terms, but that they would be a reality, that the reformation would begin in each of our hearts, that you would change us and transform us, and that in doing so, you would transform a community of people who love and serve and have their life centered around your son, Jesus Christ. So Father, help us to think through these things today and convict our hearts by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I don't know if you've been paying attention, and I, and I don't blame you if you haven't been paying attention to this, but it appears by all accounts that Hollywood is melting down, right? It, it, it appears like the entertainment industry is in full crisis mode. Every couple of days, there is another uh, a busted open case, allegations of perversion and wickedness and abuse and harassment and all kinds of of deviance, and uh, as we as we hit the get these things uh, exposed, and they come crashing like waves on the on the beach, we stop and ask: Is it any wonder? Is it any surprise that the industry, which has been the world's largest exporter of filth and corruption and lies and perversion and wickedness, that industry would itself be wicked and perverted. Is that, is that a shock to anybody? Is that, is that a shock that it is, it is that corrupt? Now, now these entertainers who for so long have been so self-righteous in the way that they preach to us about politics, about the environment, about economics, uh, and, and, and preaching to us about accepting perversion as normal, they themselves have had their dark secrets 
exposed. And I'm, I'm afraid it's just getting started. The, the thirst for sacrifice is, is, is so insatiable. Someone has to die. Someone has to be offered up in a, in a figurative sense. There, there has to be a sacrifice. Um, and, and they're going to keep doing it and find that none of these sacrifices cover the sin. None of these sacrifices cover the guilt. Of course, it's, it's only the sacrifice of Jesus that covers sin. I'm not a prophet, so, so this, is not, this is not a prophecy, but uh, I have the feeling that there's going to be a beloved, wholesome family entertainer. Uh, before it's done, before it's over with, there's going to be someone uh, who everyone loves who is going to be exposed as an absolute total creep before it's over with. And for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, it's going to be a stark, sudden, clear verdict on the folly of celebrity worship and, and, the, and a judgment on the snare of being uh, enamored with fame. We've, we've seen it too often in the church as celebrity pastors have been toppled from their throne by exposure of sin and wickedness and adultery and greed. And, and we're, we're used to it, and it may be because in the church, as sad as it is, and, and as sad as it is for, for different ministries to crumble because of this, at least we have a mechanism for dealing with sin. And at least we know sin when we see it and we're ready to uh, expose it and to, to deal with it. Uh, and we're reminded every time that it happens that men are imperfect, men are flawed, men are sinful, and all men everywhere need Jesus. From the pastor to the actor to the father to the wife to the boy to the girl, everyone needs Jesus. Which is why I love this this back-to-back celebration every year, this juxtaposition of, of Reformation Day and All Saints Day. We celebrate and we observe All Saints Day today, but, but All Saints Day is, is uh, on the church calendar is November 1st, and that's the day where we give thanks for all the saints of all the ages. We give thanks for the prophets and the apostles and the martyrs, the great fathers of the faith, as well as all those who have personally discipled us, our childhood pastors, our, our college ministers, our friends, our, our parents. Now, we give thanks to God for these saints as we have sung uh, this morning and as we have prayed already. We give thanks to God for them. We don't pray to them. We don't pray through them, but we give thanks to God for them. Jesus is our only heavenly mediator, but it is proper and right to give thanks to God for the people he has used throughout the generations who have been faithful to him to preserve the faith once delivered to the saints and to, and to pass it down to us so that we can enjoy the, the light of salvation as well and the light of revelation. So we give thanks to God for all of these saints. And at the same time, lest we indulge in celebrity worship, lest, lest we think that they're more than men and more than women, observing Reformation Day, we confess that none of them were perfect. All of them were in need of saving themselves. And, and that it's only by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that anyone has hope of eternal life. So Reformation Day reminds us of the continual need of reform in the church. You know, Reformation Day uh, is the anniversary of Martin Luther's bold protest against the abuses of the medieval church and his, his courageous call for repentance and reformation and revival in the church. And, and you know, the medieval church had drifted largely far 
from the faith. The medieval church was full of error and suspicion. It was corrupted by idolatry and greed and false doctrine. So Luther posted 95 points of argument on the door of the Wittenberg church on October 31st, 1517. He did it on October 31st because it was All Saints Eve. The next day, November 1st, was All Saints Day. So he posted it on All Saints Eve or All Hallows Eve or what is commonly known today as Halloween or Halloween. Uh, it's, it's all the same day. He chose that day intentionally. There is, a, there is an intentionality about his choosing that day because he knew everybody would be coming to church to uh, uh, celebrate All Saints Day the very next day and that they would read his courageous arguments posted uh, there uh, on the church. So we mark that date as the starting point for the Reformation in Germany that spread throughout the rest of Europe. So, so setting these two celebrations together, All Saints Day and Reformation Day is helpful. It's not clumsy, it's not contradictory. We're saying two things at the same time. We're saying, first of all, we give thanks for all the saints of all the ages. We give thanks for Abraham and Moses and David, for Isaiah and Jeremiah. We give thanks for Peter and Paul. We give thanks for uh, Augustine and Athanasius, for Martin Luther and John Calvin, for Jonathan Edwards, for John and Charles Wesley, for Charles Spurgeon, for Philip Schaff and John Williamson Nevin, for Gresham Machen and C.S. Lewis. We give thanks for G.K. Chesterton. We give thanks for my childhood pastor and your childhood pastor. We give thanks for your college minister. We give thanks for my Christian grandmother and your Christian grandfather. We give thanks for our parents and for all the saints who have helped us. And we recognize that every Lord's Day when we worship, we are worshiping together with those saints who have gone on to be at the feet of Jesus. Our voices join with their voices. Their their worship is ongoing around the throne of Jesus. It's going on all the time. And then on the Lord's Day, we ascend by the Spirit to join our voices to their voices and worship the Lord Jesus. That's the first thing. That's That's what we commemorate and remember and highlight on All Saints Day. And secondly, with Reformation Day, we confess that the church has always been and the church continues to be in need of reformation and revival. That none of these saints, though we give thanks for them and we don't hesitate to give thanks for them, none of them were perfected on this side of the grave. None of them had pristine theology. All of them can be improved upon. All of them had blind spots. Until the day when the earth is covered with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, the church will always be in need of correction. The church will go through periods of more or less victory and peace, and she will go through eras of strife and turmoil and error. But all of us everywhere, in every age, in every place, desperately need the Lord Jesus. And we are in need of both his rod and his staff to shepherd us. And so that's why we have a miniature reformation every Lord's Day together. What, what do we do when we get together? We, we, uh, we institute, we, we start off a little reformation right here in our hearts and in this sanctuary when we confess our sins to God and ask him to forgive us. Uh, and so Reformation Day is a reminder that the church is always in need of this. So while we give thanks for the work of the Reformation of the 16th century, we don't celebrate it as if it were a complete success and that it was the be-all, end-all for all time. In fact, 
the Reformation of the 16th century was not the first Reformation of the church. And Martin Luther wasn't even the first reformer of the 16th century. Going all the way back to the early years of the church and working forward, you find reformers every few centuries. There was Ambrose in the fourth. There was Augustine in the fifth, Benedict in the sixth century. Gregory the Great was a reformer in the seventh century. The Carolinians in the eighth and ninth century. Bernard of Clairvaux, who I have great exception to, was, was still a reformer in the 12th century. Gregory the seventh was in the 11th century. St. Francis, who we might also differ with, was yet a reformer in the 13th century. Right before Luther came on the scene, John Wycliffe was in England and Jan Hus was in uh, Prague and, and Martin Bucer was in the western part of Germany and Horik Zwingli was in Switzerland. Uh, so uh, predating all of these was the work of the Apostle Paul, who we would call the first reformer of the Christian church, if we're thinking this way, because before the church is even out of the gate, in the first century, we find already that congregations are in need of moral and theological and sacramental reform. So going back even further to the time of the old covenant, Yahweh says through the prophet Jeremiah, he says, I brought my people out of the land of Egypt. I gave them my law and, and listen to what God says. This is what I commanded them saying, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the ways that I've commanded you that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but they followed the counsels and dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. If we think of the prophets as reformers of, in their own right, reformers of Israel, Yahweh says, ever since I delivered you from Egypt, I have been sending you daily. I've been getting up early and sending you reformers. Your entire history, I have been sending them to you. So the necessity of reformation has been constant throughout the history of God's covenant people. There has never been a time in the history of God's people where we didn't need reform. I read just a small part of Ezra a little bit earlier. You remember Ezra was a scribe. He was a priest who lived at the end of the Babylonian captivity. And to get your mind wrapped around the timeline, uh, it was near the end of the divided kingdom when God judged the northern kingdom of Israel and Assyria wiped them out. And a few years later, God sent Babylon to come and capture uh, the, the tribe of, of, of Judah and Benjamin and Levi that was left. And he carried them off into captivity in Babylon, and they were enslaved there for 70 years. And the Lord said, I'm, it's going to be 70 years. And when the 70 years is up, I'm, I'm going to release you from this bondage. And the Lord did exactly what he said he would do. He put it in the heart of the emperor Cyrus to send the, the Hebrews back to Jerusalem, he sent them with great wealth and he sent them with a mission. Go back, rebuild your city, rebuild your temple, rebuild the walls. They've been delivered now in Ezra's day. God has been faithful to his promises to his people. And yet when they get back to the land, it isn't long before the people turn right back to the very same practices that got their grandparents kicked out of the land 70 years before. You would think then when we got back to the land and we get back to our own city and we, we want to order the society the way that God has told us to, you'd think that there would be a time of peace. You would think that there would be a time of holiness and righteousness. But if you think that, you don't know much about human nature because as soon as they get back, 
they don't waste any time. They go right back to engage in all kinds of idolatrous and pagan practices. So what I read to you was a part of the prayer of repentance as Ezra calls on God to forgive and correct them again. He, he weeps bitterly. He confesses the sins of the people. He recounts God's work to revive them, to repair what was broken, to rebuild the walls and the ruins of previous failures. And so, so Ezra play, prays, rebuild your temple, Lord, rebuild the city, but, but in doing so, revive us again. And what Ezra confesses in his prayer is that the work of reformation is never finished. Without constant, vigilant, careful commitment to God's law by all of his people, all the time, we are always in danger of slipping. We're always in danger of falling into sin and falling into grievous errors. And so listen to this and, and, and let this settle in your minds that, that there is no amount of past victory that preserves you from future failure. That there, is, there is no amount of wonderful success that insulates us against failure in the future. There's, there's no amount of past correction that eliminates the need for present and future correction. All of us, until we see Jesus face to face, still have work to do. Now, now lest I beat a dead horse, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna come at this from several angles to, to show you this. Psalm 85 was written about the same time as the uh, events of Ezra. And you can hear the psalmist reach back and thanks God, thank God for what he's done in the past, but, but he says, Lord, we need you to do this again right now. Uh, he, he says, the, the, the psalmist in Psalm 85, living about the same time as Ezra, he says, Yahweh, you have been favorable to your land. You've brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. So restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Yahweh, and grant us your salvation. So, so Lord, you've been faithful in the past. We need that same salvation and deliverance and life-giving power today. And as we think about this, I want to keep both both things in view, both macro-reformation, reformation of the whole church, but importantly, micro-reformation of our own hearts and minds and the transformation of God's Holy Spirit of our whole being as we personally are conformed. That just as God rebuilt and repeatedly revived Israel, just as he blessed her over and over and over, child of God, so will he restore and rebuild you. There's, there's this error and there's this thought that we can mess up in such a way that everything's a ruin and can never be put back together again. That, that no matter what, there's no happiness in the future. There's no glory in the future. There's no peace in the future because I have messed up so bad. I have ruined everything from here on out and it will, it will never be fixed and it can never be corrected. Have hope and have confidence in this, that just as God repeatedly built his people back up again, and they messed everything up, and he built them back up again to even more glory than before. 
and they fell and they messed everything up. So he came back and built them up again. So God will repeatedly restore and refresh and revive you in your life if you are faithful to confess your sins, if you are faithful to, uh, to, to embrace the Lord Jesus. There, there, is, there is no point past which God is uh, done with you so long as your heart remains supple and so long as you continue to repent. Um, so so this, this gives us hope both on the individual and on the corporate level that, that in our day, we don't have to somehow coast on the momentum of something God did 500 years ago. We give thanks for the Protestant Reformation. We, we are happy for it, but we also need new work to be done today to, to get us out of the new messes that we've made. A couple of more reminders of this. Psalm 104 praises God for the way that he continually renews the face of the earth. Lamentations 3 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's the way the Lord works, constantly refreshing and reforming the earth. And I want this to take hold of you because it's so easy to think that we in our generation are adrift and hopeless and all is lost and there's no way out and there's no way to fix anything and, and, and for us to despair, to think that the world is just collapsing around us and there's nothing we can do about it. Here's the good news. The world is always ending. The world is always collapsing around God's people. It's always been that way. The world is always in need of the refreshing, sustaining work of God's Holy Spirit. And so the work of reformation is perpetual. One of our, one of our reformation mottos that we inherited from the 16th century is semper reformanda. The church is always reforming. So I need to stop and take just a second to say what we mean by Reformation and what we don't mean when we use the word reformation. Reformation is not change for the sake of change. Reformation is not experimentation. It isn't an absorption of the culture around us and allowing the world to change who we are just to, just to keep the gospel relevant to the world rather than making the world relevant to the gospel, which is the mission of the church. Uh, Reformation isn't revolution. It's not, it's not a kind of reactionary response to everything that's ever come before us. This, this idea that we just need to tear everything down and scorch the earth and, and think we can start over and do better than anything that's ever come before. We ought to be careful that as, as, as often as we talk about reformation and as, as often as we talk about what it means to be reformed, that we're always specifying. Now, I want you to understand we're saying reformed according to the word of God. Because if you just talk about being reformed, reformed, what is that? Reformed what? From what? Toward what? No, we're reformed according to the word of God. Think about it this way, that the Bible is a blueprint and we're building and working and, and uh, shoring up a great fortress, a great city in line with the Bible's directions. Each of us are contributing in our own way to its construction. The problem with this is that as we build, we make mistakes and we have to tear them out and we have to start over. That's called repentance. Sometimes we get lazy and we stop building and we need to be re-energized and re-encouraged to build again. That's called revival. 
And sometimes, some people come along with tacky 1970s wood paneling and neon paint and build a whole section that doesn't fit with the blueprint. In fact, it's nowhere in the instructions and we have to tear it out and start again. And that's the work of Reformation. And that, this work of, of Reformation continues because the church is populated by us. We are, we are sinful, we are ignorant, we are always under assault from the world, the flesh, and the devil. We ourselves individually need personal reformation. And, and so in, 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 in a world where the, the devil is at work presenting new challenges and new wrinkles and new forms of attack, we constantly have to stay on our toes to respond to the challenges around us. It's like we're at work over here, securing and defending this part, while a new attack is being launched over here that, that we now need to go over here and respond to this. Ezra, in his day, you know, they worked on the temple, everything's put together, everything's going right, and then they turn around and find that the people's lives are a mess. And you don't fix the people's lives by going back to the temple and, and just finishing out the crown molding. You don't, you don't go back to the temple and, and hope that by getting the baseboards just right, somehow the people will be changed and transformed. No, no, you, you, you have new work to do, which is why the old reformations, while necessary, while we are grateful for the old reformations, aren't all sufficient. We have new problems. We have new challenges to face. So briefly, with the short time I have left, what kind of Christian reformer do we need right now today to lead the church to build in line with the blueprints? Now, there are a lot of different ways to say this. If I were to ask you, what does a 21st century reformer look like? You may say some things that I haven't said, but, but here's my stab at it. Here's my take. Right now, in this generation, we need whole Bible Christians whose highest allegiance is to Jesus and his people, whose life together reflects and extends the, the joy and the glory of the triune God. Now, I'm going I'm to break that into smaller bite-sized pieces. I'm going to unpack that. What did I say first? We need whole Bible Christians. We have observed this many times from many angles. The church today in the United States is largely biblically illiterate. Despite all the preaching and all the resources and all the books and all the radio and television programs, we as a people are ignorant of the scriptures. The, the, the Bible's just not part of who we are. The stories and the Psalms and the Proverbs are not part of our vocabulary. They're, they're not in us. And it's partly because we've had four or five generations of preaching that has almost entirely ignored the Old Testament. The best, most faithful preachers have camped out in the epistles. And the rest use the Bible as kind of a, a collection of proof texts for pop psychology or, or self-help or motivational pep talks. In an entire worship service, Christians might hear one or two verses of the Bible. And that's the only exposure to God's word that they get publicly all week to combat a, a full week of, of, of news and, and music and entertainment and movies uh, and internet that they get the rest of the week. If, if we're to understand who God is and what he requires, you and I have to know all the Bible. And we have to breathe it in and breathe it out and breathe it in and breathe it out until we get it into the fibers of our being, which is why 
We, when we worship together, we pray the Bible, we read the Bible, we hear it, we say the Bible, we sing the Bible, we preach the Bible, we eat to the Bible, we drink to the Bible. That's why I insist, largely, we take, we take breaks every now and then like we do today, but ordinarily, that's why we take whole books of the Bible and I read every word out loud in your hearing because we need all of the Bible. We need the whole counsel of God for everything that we are. We need to get it in us. And knowing theological data points is no substitute for knowing the Bible. There are plenty of Reformed Christians who could tell you what the five points of Calvinism are, but they couldn't describe or tell you what the five sacrifices of Leviticus are. And they couldn't tell you what the three high feast days of Israel are. Uh, they, 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 they can't name these or what they're about. Systematic theology has its place, but it's no good without the Bible it's based on. So we live in a day where whole Bible Christians are in short supply and in high demand. Remember what Paul told Timothy, all, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. You are not complete. You are not equipped without all scripture. We need whole Bible Christians, secondly, and the second thing I said is, whole Bible Christians whose highest allegiance is to Jesus and his people. I used to talk a lot about the tribalization of our culture, how, how everything's just kind of segmenting into tribes. And over the past three or four years, I don't even think that works anymore. It's not even tribalization anymore. It's splinterization. It's fractionalization. It's, 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 it's granulation of our culture. We don't, we don't even have tribes anymore. We, we're dissolving into tinier and tinier factions where there are thousands upon thousands of schisms and loyalties all competing for your time, for your affections, for your allegiance. And all these micro tribes are points of identity for modern men and women. These little, these little micro-splintered tribes are how we define ourselves. You might ask someone, who are you? Who am I? Well, just look at my Facebook page and you'll see I'm an affirming, trans-positive, multi-ethnic, vegan, free-range, fair trade, cruelty-free, non-binary, intersectional feminist who only listens to 90s indie cyberpunk, who writes fan fiction about a British sci-fi show you've never heard of, and I root for the Green Bay Packers, but only in an ironic way. <laughs> Christians are not immune to this. In fact, <laughs> We may have started it. We're, we're defined by all these kinds of lower allegiances. We all have these, these lower identities and these micro tribes. And, and how can we uh, make fun of hyper sectarianism when we have all bought into denominationalism? We have taught the world how to say, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. Uh, the way out of this, the only way to reform this is to affirm above all things that Jesus Christ is king. And if there is any loyalty to any tribe, it is to his tribe. If there is any honor, if there is any allegiance, it is to his kingdom, to his family. And all other loyalties and all other allegiances fade so far to the background that they look like hate to the casual observer. You think I'm crazy in saying that? That your allegiance and your loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ is to be so intense that all other allegiances look like hate. 
Didn't Jesus himself say this? Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this is not so that you can feel good about cultivating spite in your heart for your parents. But here's what Jesus is saying. If your family opposes Jesus and you have to choose one or the other, you choose Jesus. Your affection for him, your loyalty to him is so high that you would forsake your own mother before you forsake him. He says, in fact, you would forsake your own life before you forsook him. If Jesus and loyalty to him is more important than your loyalty to your mama, and if your allegiance to Jesus is supposed to be higher and more precious to you than your allegiance to your own life, then how tightly do we hold our commitment to a food fad or to what car we drive or to our baseball team or to our favorite band or our political party or our nationality or to our race? Are these what Jesus has given us to define us? The answer is no, very clearly no. See, this is how you expose and you burn out idolatry by a loyalty and an allegiance to the Lord Jesus that is so fanatical, that, that looks so extreme, that all other affections, all other loyalties, everything that rivals his reign as king is like dross. It's like dirty dishwater. It's like raw sewage compared to your loyalty and your love for the Lord Jesus. I, I love the hymn. We sang a lot of good hymns today, and uh, this may be one of my favorite days on the church calendar, hymn-wise. But uh, one other that we sing is, All idols underfoot be trod. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. To God all praise and glory. This kind of idol toppling idol-stomping Christian who professes Jesus as king over everything is what we need in the splintered, fractured, self-centered, self-absorbed age. This is a loyalty that rises above all the other loyalties and unites us in a way that nothing else can. Right now in this generation, we need whole Bible Christians whose allegiance is to Jesus and his people and whose life together reflects and extends to the world the joy and the glory of the triune God. Now, I'm going to unpack that last part quickly. In our baptisms, you and I have been joined to Jesus. And with Jesus, we have been brought into the life of the Trinity. The life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who from all eternity have been engaged in a dance of exchanges of love and sacrifice and service and, and self-effacing exchanges of holiness this is the dance of the Trinity. And with Jesus, we have been brought into this dance. And the church is brought into this dance as well. Our life together on earth, together as a community, with Jesus in the center, must reflect that eternal dance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The life of the Trinity, when reflected in our lives together, is attractive, it's inviting, it extends to the lost, dark, and hopeless world a, a, a bright light, a, a, a chance to believe that there's something more, there's something greater, there's life. There is a family who loves me and wants me. There's a people with whom I can find my identity and understand who I am in and among the people of Jesus. Now, intellectually, if I say, do you believe that? I think you'd say, yeah, I, I kind of get that, I believe that. But if we're honest, our life together often looks 
less like a perfectly choreographed ballet, The Life of the Trinity, and it looks more like the, the mosh pit at a Nirvana concert in 1992. <laughs> we're bumping into each other, we're stepping on each other's feet, we're obnoxious, and somebody's gonna get hurt, and somebody's gonna get carried on on a stretcher if we don't <laughs> knock it off. It's every man for himself, right? Uh, well, you know what? Yes, that, that's true, it happens, but, but you know what? jump back in and dance until we get it figured out. Keep trying, not, we, we don't achieve this by sitting at home, by isolating ourselves, by withdrawing into our cocoons, but by jumping into the dance, by embracing festivity and joy. Even if we don't know all the steps, even if we don't know what we're doing, we're trying. And so keep trying, keep putting yourself into the dance to extend yourself into other people's lives, to know and to be known. It's scary, it's dangerous until we learn all the steps, but don't shrink back. This above all things is what our world needs. It needs, our world needs, your world needs, your community, your street, your neighborhood needs a functioning, healthy community and friendships. This is how we bridge the lost world to Jesus. This is the new wine of the new reformation. The previous Reformation was centered around the message of justification by grace through faith uh, alone. And that's still absolutely true and it's still absolutely vital. But we need a new and ongoing Reformation that addresses the needs of men and women right now in this age. L let me explain it this way and I'll wrap it up with this. When the gospel was first preached to the pagan world, the world of classical Greek culture was dissolving. It was crumbling. It was winding down. Trust in the old gods was failing. They were rejecting the immorality of the old gods, the weakness of, of, of that whole system. And so in the midst of this, the, the church preached the message of the gospel was this. You are living in the old world of darkness. You are living in the old world of ignorance and isolation and loneliness and fear and bondage. But there is a new world. So leave your dead tribes, leave your dead nations and join this people, join this family. Leave the coldness of paganism and join the warmth of the church. Be a part of our family, eat at our table, be our friend. And that was the message in the first centuries of the church. But as the Roman empire began to fall apart, the church preached a, a new message, just as true, just as, as compatible, but, but which addressed the needs of, of the day. In the middle of the anarchy that came when the Roman empire fell apart, the church preached, well, Caesar may be gone, but Jesus is still king. Come under his rule, come under his law. This is the way to live. These are the things that God requires of you. Come away from that crumbling empire and join this new empire, this new way of life. And, and that's true and that's always true. And, and the church invited uh, the world to come live under the law and the rule and the order of the church. That's what the world needed and the church provided that. But after several centuries of that, the church fell more and more into error and superstition and idolatry where the law of life has become oppressive. And the expectation was that we can somehow merit God's favor by being faithful to the law of life. And so works righteousness replaced the gospel. Well, what do we need? Well, we need a new reformation. We need reformers to preach the message of liberty and freedom, the, the freedom that comes by justification uh, by, by grace through faith alone. And so we get the Protestant reformation. 
the reformers preached that the only way to have peace with God is to accept the atoning work of Jesus by faith. That is still true. That remains to be true and vital. But that message was preached in a day when people had a sense of right and wrong, where, where sin and judgment and blessing were words in their vocabulary. They knew who God was and they accepted his word to be true. And so it fit and it made sense to them. But today, no one is really listening to that message because it's answering questions that are based upon a shared understanding and a heritage that's been lost. Now, 500 years after the Reformation, we live in a culture that's very much like the culture of the early church with the isolation and the loneliness and the despair. And also with that overreaching question, who am I? What am I? Am I a man? Am I a woman? Am I a dolphin? Am I a marmoset? What am I? And the gospel message that our generation of reformers must preach is this. You are living in a world of darkness. You are living in a world of ignorance and isolation. You are living in loneliness and bondage, but there's a new world. So leave your dead tribes, leave your dead nations and join this people, join this family, leave the coldness of paganism and join the warmth of the church. Be part of our family, eat at our table, be our friend, come be united to Jesus, put your trust in him and find this family is your family. This is the community that you are looking for. So that's what I mean. Right now in this generation, we need whole Bible Christians whose highest allegiance is to Jesus and his people, whose life together reflects and extends to the world the joy and the glory of the triune God. Today, we rejoice in the work of all the saints who've come before. We rejoice and give thanks for the lives of all the reformers, but we don't stop there. We don't rest on their works. We have work to do in our day. It's possible that we're living at the very beginning of a new reformation of the church, a reformation of her worship, a reformation of Christian education and how we view children altogether, a reformation of Bible preaching and Bible reading, a reformation that knocks down all the old idols, a reformation of community life. And Jesus calls you just as he called Martin Luther to grab a hammer, go to the church and get to work. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise today for all of the saints who have been reformers in their generations. And we pray that you would raise up from our midst in this generation, uh, Christians who are faithful to continue the work of reformation in our day. We desperately need it. We uh, feel uh, uh, threatened and under attack from every angle, but we know that you and are more powerful than anything that assails us, anything that, that attacks us. And we know that you will have the victory. You have promised us this. So Father, strengthen us, give us courage, give us power by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.